visiting with a man, a dying man, and I was trying to explain to him at the origin, the commencement of this common life called Rock Creek Fellowship that was being planted. We started in the West Bow Community Center, and this is a man who had lived here his whole life. And I was trying to explain to him, with a complete lack of success, our idea about planting churches. He could not, despite all of my use of as many words as I could come up with, what, you? He could not wrap his mind around the notion that a church would be started on purpose and not out of anger. See, he knew the history, and he told it to me, of all the little churches around here, and he knew from his good experience, this is the man who, when I first met him, said, now, you ain't one of them finger wagon preachers, are you? I was always afraid to wag my finger at him after that. But he knew from good experience that the way churches get started is you have a congregation, and then Jimmy gets mad at Bobby, and he takes off and he starts his own church down the street. He ain't never seen a band no other way than that. And we live in a region of the country where that kind of thing has happened a lot. Well, it's not just a regional thing. We're in a denomination. The descendants of Machen's warrior children who like to fight and spit and bicker. He couldn't understand when I said, you know, we want to start these churches because we want to. We're not mad at anyone. In fact, the only thing that anger has to do with it, as I'm thinking of this, is that God's not angry with us. So why not start churches? Why not start communities that embody before people's very eyes in ways that they can see and touch and feel that God is not holding over their heads the sense of their lousiness, that God has remedied all the things that stand against them, that God himself is actively working to make all things sad come untrue, and he's built these little congregations that serve, as Leslie Newdigan once said, as hermeneutics of the gospel, the place where you can learn by touch, by feel, by hearing, by sight, that God loves even people like you, even people like me. And he engrafts us into the story of reclamation of the whole world that was his, then fell to pieces because of our God allergies, and he's immunizing us and changing us and making us new, and we get to breathe it. We get to experience it together. We get to be part of a work that can be enlivening. One of the greatest compliments I heard secondhand about presiding as a pastor over this congregation, one of the greatest privileges of it is that I honestly believe that what one man said recently is at least experienced by two or three other people, maybe even more. A man said, this is the first time I've been in a church where I walk away and I don't feel condemned each week. 
But it's easy to imagine that God might actually like me. So you can do all manner of things. If you start to believe that God likes you, you move toward him. You can get engrafted into his purposes and begin to be about his intentions on the planet. You don't hold him in as much suspicion. There's so many reports I've heard of people in this congregation who actually are actively one anothering in the way that we talk about. They experience the warmth and the wonder of God's care from real life people in whom Jesus has taken up residence. I think that's exciting. Well, as leaders at Rock Creek Fellowship, as a session of Rock Creek Fellowship, we've been praying and we've made a decision. And it doesn't have to do with anybody being mad at anybody. It has to do with the fact that God's not mad at the world, but has sent his son to reconcile it. And he loves to create communities where that truth comes to life, where sermons put on shoes, where Jesus is embodied in warmth and wonder in actual people. And we're planning, we're planning Rock Creek Fellowship to, to plant a church in Trenton, Georgia. See, back at the time of the Civil War, there was a Presbyterian church on the square in Trenton. Do you know this? It was early work of the Presbyterians, elder-ruled congregations. But during, as they call the War of Northern Aggression, Sherman and his troops came through, and they, I don't know if they filed a formal petitionary process or if they just took it, but Sherman and his troops stayed in that Presbyterian church. And so after the Civil War, what was done to that church was the only thing that could be done to a church that Sherman had stayed in. It was burnt. That's the law, anyway. So we felt like they needed a new Presbyterian church. It's been 150 years. That's not the reason. That's a joke. But that story is apparently true. You can ask Hutch more about it. We know that when we start talking about planting a church, that questions emerge. And one of the questions that emerge in a place like this where you're smack dab in the middle the buckle, even, of the Bible belt. As you can start to ask questions like these, natural questions, the kinds of questions that just occur to the top of your noggin, right in the frontal lobe of your noodle. Why on earth would you start a church in a region where there are 462 gazillion churches? And I think that's an actual number. Why would you start a church when there are not many churches around? And what we're hoping to do over the next several weeks as we start the fall and our new season of life as a congregation and students return and people are coming back from vacations, is we're going to hopefully entice you, compel you to believe that you have come to an answer that makes you instead say not, why would we plant a church, but rather, why would we not plant churches? We're hoping to answer the questions in such a way and cast a kind of picture of what we think God's up to on planet Earth as depicted in the scriptures and as that history comes to life in the millennia that follow. We're hoping that you'll see that God is up to something. We talked about it at the beginning last week as we looked at Acts 1. And we're going to look at it one more week and then we'll go on to other parts of Acts. This whole idea that from the very beginning, God has had an intention. 
He rescues what he delights in. The psalmist gives full voice to that. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Well, God actually likes this planet because he made it. His breath animated it. His mind thought it up. His heart fuels it. His love energizes the very sun, as one poet has said. God loves this place, and it's been blown to bits by human autonomy, by God allergy, by people doing whatever the heck they want to do, by people extending the middle finger to God, and he says, I'm not your enemy, though. I'm going to let you off the hook, and I want to reclaim this place as my own. He has intentions, and we want to talk about those intentions, what he's up to in the world, not just so you'll know why we want to plant a church, and hopefully why some of you, at least the ones we want to get rid of, will go with the church plant. No. Some of you will be excited to go be part of the church plant. But we're hoping as well that as you hear these things, you'll start to realize what God's intentions are for you when you leave these doors each Sunday. And you go into Chattanooga, you go into Fort Oglethorpe, you go into Trenton, you go to the college you go to soccer fields and schools and hospitals and banks as carriers of Christ and as participants, not spectators, participants in the prior work that God is always up to. We're hoping to give you a vision for that and an excitement about that so it can frame the life that you're in. See, because one of the things that happens, and this is... Part of why we're looking at this book of Acts, one of the things that happens to us is that we can come up with our own plans. You know this. We have expectations for how life ought to be. We don't often pause to wonder where those expectations came from or if we'll have the power or wherewithal to bring them to bear. But one of the teachings of the scriptures can be... I illustrated in some way from a recent visit of the President of the United States to our fair city. Now, Chattanooga is not the kind of place I deduce from reading and hearing things where President Obama is roundly adored, we'll say in mild terms. But the thing is, when the President comes, you can be excited about the President coming. When the president comes, you can leave town at the same time as he's coming as a sort of loud protest, as if you matter. Or you can write nasty letters about him and publish them in the newspaper. But regardless of how you respond to this fact that he is coming as the one who has been placed in charge of our country, He's still coming. No matter how you feel about his coming, when he gets here, if he's near where you're having to work, your day's going to be delayed. The interstate's still going to be blocked off whether you want it to be or not. His plan is going to override your plan. And one of the great teachings of the Bible, as we've talked about before, is helping us like a good counselor would to... Frame our lives according to reality. And one of the things that the Bible wants us to see, what Luke wants us to see, is that when Jesus began to do and to teach, 
as we see in the Gospels, after he began this work, he was ascended into heaven, as Jordan just read, and he's going to come back. But in the meantime, when he was talking about, for 40 days he appeared to his disciples and he spoke to them about the new administration that he was going to be putting into place. The Bible says the kingdom of God. We don't think in terms of kingdom so well. But God is actively, with good intention, happy intentions, he is going to establish his kingship. His administration and his policies are going to come to be the law of every land eventually. And so if you're someone who wants to leave town when that happens, you can do that for a little while. But if you don't want to be part of a God-filled future, then you have no future. Because the future is going to be all God. There's not even going to be a sun, we're told, in symbolic ways in this new planet when heaven and earth are converged. Because God himself, his radiance, will bright up every dark corner of the world with a delicious, healing, replenishing light more valuable than the sun. And so one of the things we're trying to do is say, this is what is happening. The apostles believed when Jesus was raised from the dead, something significant had occurred. And they began to frame their lives in response to this significant thing that has occurred. And that is what Luke is urging us to do as he gives us a picture of what God began and continued to do through his church after he was beamed up to heaven. And he says this to them, Jesus does. You, in verse 8, will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, wait. You're going to receive power when you receive the Holy Spirit and then you will be my witnesses. Here in the, great, the, in the city of the great king, Jerusalem, and as it cascades out to the land where the Gentiles rule, to the land of the Caesars. This book of Acts ends in Rome, the rival center of authority. God says, you're going to witness to my new administration when this power comes on you. He's up to something. You will receive these things. You will be my witnesses. Jesus has an intention. They're going to be part of it. This is where history is going. Someone is behind history's wheel driving. He tells his apostles they're going to be witnesses. Now, here's a question. How do you get prepared to be a witness? He tells them, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you're going to be my witnesses. Well, one of the things that happens, and this is relevant for us because 
These apostles were called in a very unique way to be witnesses to the resurrection. We are called as eavesdroppers to this conversation to be witnesses in our own day. But how do you get prepared to be a witness to a reality that other people can't see? Luke talks about it this way in Acts. He says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I want you to pause for a minute and let that, like a warm shower, come over you. Because one of the hardest things about this Christian faith, one of the hardest things about following Jesus in our day, when there's a lot of dispersion cast on the Bible, when it's very easy to wonder, can I trust these things? When there is no central authority, that's why young mothers everywhere doubt their pediatrician's advice. No one knows what to do because everybody's saying you should do something different. Who knows who the authority is supposed to be? Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, appeared to his disciples and gave them many convincing proofs. It's important to think about this. These men... These men, formerly, who had a big back problem, gigantic yellow streak down the middle of it, became courageous men, became men so convinced of something that they were willing to lay down their lives, to defend it, to reveal it, to portray it, and what they said and what they did. It's important that you look at these guys and realize throughout the New Testament, all of these apostles say these kinds of bizarre things that sneering faces can scoff at. But wise people will at least consider and say, hmm, I might ought to consider how deeply these guys believe this stuff. Peter calls himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He says, when we told you these stories about Jesus coming and dying for our sins, God having sent him, these were not these were not the results of our being in a creative writing class. This wasn't fiction. These were cleverly invented stories. These were things we saw and are unable to unsee now. John says the same thing. He says we were eyewitnesses of his glory. We've touched him. We've held him. We've seen him. We've heard him. The Apostle Paul, describes himself as one abnormally born, speaks of the fact that there wasn't no man nowhere that gave him insider trading tips about Jesus. Nobody tweeted him or texted him. He didn't read about this on a blog of parchment. That's how blogs were formerly in parchment. He did not receive this message about Jesus from anyone other than Jesus himself, he says. We have in the scriptures the recollection of people who were sure of something. That God himself had put on skin, had suffered, and was raised from the dead, and they saw him ascend to heaven, and they knew that that meant everything was changed. So you ignore him really as a fool. I had to put it politely. 
And we can say, well, I could believe that so much more stringently. In fact, I could be such a, I could be catapulted into heroic acts of self-sacrifice and devotion to Jesus if I had seen Jesus up close and personal too. Jesus knew you were going to say that, so he lets it be recorded when he talks to Thomas, who's saying the same kind of thing. I, I'm not going to believe any of this stuff until I see him, until I touch him, until I see the marks where the nails have been. And Jesus shows him, and he says, Thomas, doubt your doubt. Put your fingers there. Stop doubting and believe. And he says, you guys have seen me? And you believe? Well, good. That's easy. Blessed are those who don't see me and believe. Unbelief is sexy, but it's foolish. If you're a fan of The Office, there's one scene where Dwight Schrute, who's an important man by his own reckoning, in the early days comes to Ryan, the temp, and he says, temp, what I want you to do is gather up phone numbers, emergency contact information for people in the office. Do you think you can handle that? And Ryan, the temp, says, yes, I think I can. And he says, do you think or do you know? And Ryan says, I think. (laughs) And with that humorous and snarky response, he gives voice to the sexiest position of the age. What can you know? What can you know? It might be true. But these guys were saying, I'm willing to bet my life on it. They were prepared to be witnesses because they saw something they could not unsee, and they recorded it for us, and it's been preserved for us, and the truth of what Luke said has happened. You will be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, into the back of Lookout Mountain in 2013. We're reading about this today, you see, because it came true, because it is true. Witnesses get proofs, and we've got the record of proof that we need to give ourselves to. The other thing about a witness, he says you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Witnesses are defective in and of themselves. They're incomplete. You're going to get power means that in your present state, you don't have the necessary resources to carry out this task that I've given to you. I think it's important for us to see that this idea of God entrusting power to us is often going to come to us in the least likely places, the places where we feel most defective, the places where we ourselves are most weak, where we're most under-resourced. I have thought my whole life up to a certain point anyways, when I heard people talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, that when I was fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, I would suddenly not need a door anymore. I could just walk through a wall. There would be a silhouette of me, my size, where I walked through it, like Paul Bunyan. You'll receive power. See, in the Old Testament, when the Spirit was not poured out as generously and liberally upon everyone, 
The Spirit was given to people for special tasks. And you kids might like this story. My boys do. The Spirit came upon Samson. Who played defensive tackle for the University of Alabama later. When the Spirit came upon Samson, he was suddenly capable with a jawbone of destroying, like a ninja, a thousand men. With a jawbone? See, when the Spirit came on him, he could take out anybody. And so it's easy to assume when you hear about the Holy Spirit and the power that the Holy Spirit's going to give, it's easy to assume that maybe, just maybe, this maybe, when I get filled up with the Holy Spirit entirely, I'm going to be a completely different kind of person. I'm not going to be nervous when I'm around you. I'm not going to be worried and fearful. I listened as a young man to a man I loved and admired named R.V. Brown. R.V. Brown is a man who is larger than our house. He played college football. Once he had a wreck. And so muscle-bound was he in his Mazda RX-7, probably 1983 edition. He got hit from behind, or he smashed into the front of somebody. This was pre-airbags. He didn't need airbags because he held onto that steering wheel. And when he got jolted with severe force, he bent it over. He bent his steering wheel with his muscles. He probably just looked at it funny. And I heard him one day at the community kitchen. He was talking to these homeless guys there who were there to eat and they're trying to change their lives. And I heard him say, when I am filled with the Spirit, I can walk down the street and ain't nobody going to stand in my way. And I was like, yes. That's what I want to have. I want to walk down the street and nobody's standing in my way. And I started thinking, nobody's going to stand in your way as I started to reflect because they're scared of you, RV. You're a giant, giant person. They're afraid you might eat them like a snack. Well, you know what? The power of the Spirit don't work with me that way, but I, I've been helped as I watched what happens as these apostles became witnesses to the power of Jesus. People like the Apostle Paul, later born apostle. He says in one place, and I, I was helped by an author to understand this, and I've experienced it in my life in so many ways, and it's been so helpful. The Apostle Paul saying, When I came to you, I came in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. And I started to realize, and I have started to realize more and more in trying to lean into it instead of fighting against it, that very often I, I just misunderstand what the Spirit's going to do. See, the Spirit is God taking up residence in you and then emitting that kind of life out of you. The Apostle Paul here gives voice to the fact that when he goes to perform his apostolic ministry, the ministry, he says, I can't help but do this stuff. When he did it, he was sick to his stomach. His knees were knocking and his palms were sweaty. He was scared. He was trembling, he said. And that was where the power of God came. Through the avenue of his trembling. See, what happened was the recipients of his preaching, they got the power. What he got? Nervousness. Fear, weakness. Now, 
I can understand that a lot better than walking down the street and having people get out of my way. Do you feel weak? Do you feel unsure? Do you feel unable? As you trust the Spirit to work through you as a witness, you'll be surprised that very often it's those areas that you hate most about your life and you can't understand why they happen to you and you can't understand why they won't go away. It's those areas. The places of your suffering where you steward the power of God. The places of your anxiety, the places of your fear. These are the avenues of your weakness where so often you will bear witness to Jesus in the most compelling way. I've had guys say to me before, man, I can feel the Spirit this morning when you preach. Could you feel it? I was like, no, man, my stomach just hurt. I'm being a little facetious, but no, I didn't feel what, I didn't feel what he was feeling. I just felt nervous and unsure and like a big idiot. What a gift that God would work through nervous, unsure, big idiots. Witnesses get convincing proofs. Witnesses get worked through in weakness. And then this is it. When these guys knew they were going to be witnesses, and they were going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, they saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They are told to wait. They go back, and they join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, mother of Jesus, and all his brothers. They join together constantly in prayer. And it seems to me that if you're going to be someone who is able to bear witness to the unseen Christ... You're going to have to be someone who's constantly joining together in prayer so that you can go out into the world to be a living depiction of this Christ who lives in you. You've got to be like Walker Person once said about Jacob. I don't know why anybody would settle for less than Jacob who said, I'm grabbing a hold of God and I'm not letting go until he gives me a blessing. Throughout the book of Acts, power movement of God, the undoing of things that undo us is always preceded by God's intention and people asking God to do stuff. So do you need God to do stuff? Oh, I hope we will be the people who wrestle with God. See, we're all very good at wrestling. If there are warriors in here, you are excellent doctoral students at wrestling with unseen things even. The problem is you're wrestling with unseen, unreal things. You're wrestling with potentialities and what might happen and what could be the case. When you pray, you're wrestling with unseen, real things. Not unseen, unreal. Unseen, but real things. The resurrected Christ who aims to give power to his church so that they can make intelligible his life in the world. He wants to equip you at the bank. He wants to equip you at the school. He wants to equip you on the construction site. He wants to equip you in your home and in your neighborhood to bear witness to him. So ask him and plead with him so that you can be a witness showing the welcoming love of God. A few years back, I'm going to close with this. I was walking. Well, that's riveting. I was walking and praying in the Chickamauga battlefield, a habit that I stopped after this story that I'm about to tell you. No, it wasn't this story alone. It was this plus some stuff I heard plus the fact that one day I was 
walking through one of the back streets there. I went there because it was private, so I could pray, and no one would think I was a crazy person because they wouldn't see me, because there were no people to see me. And I saw a car one day, a little Chevette, a blue Chevette. I don't know if some of you are old enough to know what that is. And it was stuck in the ditch. And so I went over to help get this car out of the ditch, and this person driving the car as I helped, I realized, oh, this person is a full-grown man with a wig and wearing pantyhose. And so that was weird. <laughs> and then, on another day, I was walking along and I was praying, and I think I might have even had a Bible with me, and I was on one of these roads, and, and all of a sudden this car started creeping alongside me. He drove by me. And so... Uh, okay, what's going on? And then, and then they turned around. I saw them turn around. They turned around. They drove back by again. It's like, dear Lord in heaven. Because you see, I'm not an armed man except for uh, Smith and Wesson. And here I was out in the middle of nowhere, and this strange person in this car is just driving back and forth, real slow and unusually interested in what I was doing. Well, then happily, after freaking me out for a good 10 minutes, this person just went on ahead and pulled over right and up in front of me. So I had a question to answer for myself. Do I take off running? <laughs> like, no, I'm too big for that. And I, I, What's he going to do? <laughs> so I decided to engage this person. He was coming towards me. So I said, hey, how you doing? Can I help you? And under my breath, really? Like, what are you doing freaking people out like this? So he's walking towards me. I say, can I help you? And I think he says something like, I noticed you're carrying a Bible there. And I probably said something astute, like, yes. And he said, I used to be on drugs. And Jesus came to me, and Jesus is as real to me as those trees right there. He's as real as those trees right there. And I didn't faint. And I don't remember how the thing ended. I probably said, wow. But I think back to this weird witness for Jesus. And it was weird. That's weird. You know, don't do that to people. It's weird. <laughs> but I think back to this weird witness to Jesus because I was out there wrestling with the unseen Christ. I was wrestling for him to be something to me. I was in a period in my life early in the ministry here. I didn't know what in the corn I was doing. I still don't. But I do have a lot of confidence in Jesus to do things. And I was learning that confidence. And this was a person, this weird person, along with some other voices, who helped me to start to think even more about the fact that Jesus is not just a doctrine that gets me saved. Jesus is not just a, a, an idea or a figment of the imagination. Jesus is an ever-present, living help for the weak. And you know what? I... I just have the feeling that nobody told my weird friend that he ought to go out and accost people on the side of the highway. I think he just couldn't help himself because Jesus was as real to him as that forest. 
He was as real as rain. He got saved by Jesus. He got rescued by Jesus. Jesus had present value in his life. And he couldn't help but tell people about it. See, we can tell you over the next couple of weeks, hey, church, you're called the mission. But if Jesus doesn't have any present value to you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go, oh, man, I, but I have a soccer game. I don't want you. He's going to, you're going to get mad. You're going to get suspicious. You think God's going to send you to live out with Neil and Debbie and Azerbaijan? You're going to be like, I don't even know how to spell Baku. You think he, he, if this is just something you have to do because you, you, you better, God's going to kick you in the pants. You're not going to do it very well. See, if you start to realize that God is on a mission of welcoming people, even like my weird friend who was on drugs, and he got welcomed and released, and now Jesus was savory to him. Jesus was what he needed to live. Then you're going to find yourself, even if you don't know how to defend the faith, even if you don't know what you're supposed to do exactly, you're going to find yourself in situations commending Jesus to others because you're going to be like, you know what? I don't know how to defend the truth of the Bible, but I know when I read it, dead parts come alive in me. You know what? I don't know how to answer all those questions, but I know as a witness that Jesus is alive, and I don't know how I'd make it through a day without wanting to kill myself, without him resourcing me every second. I don't know how I'd keep doing this hard job of mine. I don't know how I would keep at the tasks that have been given to me if Jesus wasn't resourcing me and coming alive to me and showing me that he works wonders even through dilapidated weakness. Even through suffering I don't want, and weakness that I hate. See, if you find that Jesus is a, has a great deal of present reality to you, a great deal of present value to you, or at least you're fighting so that it would be the case, you're saying, Jesus, and you're wrestling with him. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep after you. I'm going to hound you until you make me somebody who trusts you. Makes me a witness of yours wherever I go. And the way that I work and the way that I talk and the way that I live. See, being a witness is living your life in such a way that it wouldn't make any sense if God didn't exist and he wasn't inhabiting you. And I can command you to do it. But you're not going to do it very well that way. The best mission comes out of this sense. This cascading, rippling, overflowing sense that we've been given something and we can't hold on to it. That's why we want to plant church. We've been given something. We can't hold on to it. And we've been given a Savior who loves us most when we deserve it least. And we can't hold on to that either. Oh, would you fight for him who makes us welcome so that you could spread his welcome as a witness wherever you go. Amen.